The systems we built many years ago and function within today are changing rapidly. How can you change along with it? This is the Levers of Exchange podcast, where we share ideas and knowledge and best practices for achieving a sustainable future. I'm your host, Jimmy Gia. Danella Meadows, in her book Thinking in Systems, said that a system must consist of three kinds of things elements, interconnections, and a function or purpose. In season three, we interviewed six practitioners who shared with us how they work within their systems. And these six systems are quite wide ranging telecom, water, marine, electric utility, finance, and cultural systems. Season three is brought to you by a generous grant from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University. The guests this season are graduates of the Said Business School or the Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment, both at Oxford. If you're new to this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And now, let's get to know our guests of Season 3. Systems pervade our everyday life. They go on unnoticed, and I would argue, underappreciated. So I asked each of our guests, what was a formative memory of when they first noticed the systems that they lived within? For some, such as Joaquin Viquez, a water engineer and consultant in Costa Rica, that formative moment was as a teenager, seeing problems on his family farm and asking himself, why? Like looking, growing up in the, in the farming side of things and, and sort of looking at the same, of the, of the struggles that my, say my dad would, would go through at farming level. And then later on my early times in, in my career, looking at the issues of, of farmers through that experience of just kind of visiting them and just hearing out their, their struggles. I can't do this or I can't do that because of, of this. Obviously, we had a lot of sort of uh, apple, not apple trees, um, fruit trees in, in our property. And one of them was Guajawa, which is very similar to an apple in the sense. And I just remember there's a season that the tree just blows up, right? With, with fruit, all the fruits fall to the ground and you just can't eat them as, as, as quick. And I just remember looking at that sort of wasteful moment in time and being like, can we, can we do something about it? And I remember it's like testing different things. Obviously nothing made sense then. And how old were you when you had that formative moment? I was trying to think back that probably early teens, 12, 13, 14. What were some of the things you tried to do with the extra fruit? I always tried. I, I <laughs> for some interesting reason, I, I thought that it would be, they would decompose really quickly. And so they, it would get really wet. And so I thought maybe we could extract water from it, even though it was like pouring outside. Never thought of like the things that I do now, like energy or, or compost. For Sharuthi Vijaya Kumar, a global shaper at the World Economic Forum and co-founder of the Emerge Institute, she first noticed the disparity between cultures as a child when traveling back and forth between her home in New Zealand and visiting family in India. But it took time and many years before she started making the connections. I don't think for a while. I think there were little signs in my life. So, for example, one of the first moments of questioning as an Indian growing up in New Zealand, I used to often visit every couple of years my grandparents back in India. And so as a child, being confronted with 
extreme poverty, pollution, corruption, beauty, color, life, dynamism, the hecticness and wonder and sad situation of India, all of it, kind of being confronted with that and then coming back to New Zealand, which felt kind of, yeah, simple and there wasn't much going on. There certainly wasn't the degree of social issues on the surface anyway. It's got its own issues, but but very different and certainly not at the same scale. That injustice or that, that juxtaposition of these two worlds had me questioning why do I live where I live and why do I have the privileges that I have and how have I come into the situation and what does that mean in terms of my responsibility or it, some of the early questions were seeded as to why things the way they are, which started the inquiry. But for many years, yeah, I saw these things as very different and separate issues. About what age were you when you started noticing these and started connecting the dots? Maybe like 10, 11, 12 would have, you know, as a child, maybe at 19, 11, 12, going to India and, and kind of just not making sense of it. But I don't know if it would have been an active inquiry. I probably saw the pollution and then was playing with my cousins the next minute. <laughs> but I think also for many years, even in my head, there were very separate issues and the understanding of them was somewhat simplistic. When I was in these sorts of social justice communities, it was everyone had their topic, which again was kind of a more reductionist way of viewing these issues. So I think I still saw the issues as somewhat different. And even my understanding of how to tackle them it was fairly simplistic. Like I went into university initially wanting to do a law degree, thinking, oh, if I could help shift laws around child slavery or child rights or environmental laws, you know, that's the way I could really have an impact. It was either you become a lawyer, you go for the U you go work at the UN because apparently they solve all the world's problems, you know? So it was rather simplistic through the study of economics and politics. And really more than that, through spending time in communities. I went back and lived in India working with a little education startup, but really it was my first time in my own country in the most grassroots communities. I think it's really the the time that's spent with people from different backgrounds hearing these stories, trying things, testing things, working on things where it became much more apparent and clear. Both James Mitchell and Jeremy McDaniel praised their mentors that they had while in undergraduate. James Mitchell is now a principal at the Rocky Mountain Institute and a director at the Center for Climate Aligned Finance. Now based in London, he got his start in Kansas. It's a great question. I have to say I give full credit to the many sort of mentors that I've, I've had along the way. One of those is a woman called Molly Davies, who was my undergraduate advisor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Molly pushed me a lot to various projects throughout undergrad. And she also actually suggested that I, I applied to the the geography department in Oxford, where the Smith School sits and the sustainable finance program sits. So it's, it's to credit, credit to her that I, I made that application. And, and really, I, I discovered that the concept of sustainable finance while in Oxford, I had done some preparatory reading, which had kind of pushed me in that direction prior to arriving. But uh, that's where I, where I really discovered it and, and began sort of developing that interest more. The people you spend time around and the work you do with your classmates can have a big influence. Jeremy McDaniels is now a senior advisor for sustainable finance at the Institute of International Finance. His journey took him from the University of British Columbia to the University of Oxford. That would probably be in my undergraduate uh, studies at the University of British Columbia, where I managed to have the great opportunity to uh, do some applied research on climate risk perceptions within the media and public opinion on, on climate change risk. But definitely the main exposure and the exposure to the entire 
field of sustainable finance uh, was at uh, the University of Oxford and, and was really lucky to have the opportunity to be working with colleagues at the Smith School and colleagues uh, Gordon Clark uh, and other great uh, professors on questions of what the entire agenda on stranded assets could mean, uh, what policy responses could be implemented, and, and how the private sector could take some strategic actions in that space. And I think that that entire process, both the you know going through the formal education, but also the kind of informal education associated with being in that network of Oxford and being able to leverage off that for contacts uh, for research projects that would be you know at very high levels in, in the financial system in London other jurisdictions was was really foundational for development of my uh, future career. Now Stuart Hillen is a portfolio development lead at Energy Australia, and he started off his career as a civil engineer with a love of big physical things. So going into energy made a lot of sense after his studies. But where to land inside of the big energy field? Here's his journey. Uh, well, I was originally, as I mentioned before, I was originally in in consulting, in strategy consulting, and I did a lot of different projects in different industries, and I sort of gravitated to the ones that had real assets. And I guess over time, wanted to kind of pivot my career into a field that was going through a lot of change. Felt like it was doing something to do with sustainability and climate change but was dealing with big infrastructure projects. I went into energy economic advisory, also at Deloitte, and then worked in that field for a while. And so I guess that was the sort of testing the waters of the sector, understanding the different aspects of the energy sector, because it is, you know, obviously project development is just a small part of it. There's lots of other parts of the energy sector. And so through that role in economic advisory, I got exposure to lots of renewable developers because, you know, economic advisors often provide price forecasts for debt due diligence, actually. So, if the developer wants to go and get project finance, then they'll get an external advisor to provide a view on forward price curves. And so, through that and as well as lots of other sort of energy-related projects sort of really honed in on onto finding project development really interesting. But as a consultant, you don't really have any skin in the game, right? You're providing advice, but you don't think of the idea. You don't sort of originate the concept or the opportunity. And so that's why I guess I kind of wanted to go on to, it's sort of like going on to the buy side, I guess, if you're in the M&A world, you know, you're going on to the developer side, you sort of get to control the destiny a little bit. Obviously, there's lots of other factors, but I guess, yeah, I thought utilities would be a cool place to do that. And also... You know, the fact that vertically integrated utilities can sort of back their own assets as well, I thought it was a great place to be able to execute on those development ideas and opportunities, whereas that can be a bit more challenging as a sort of independent developer. So, yeah, I think that's probably how I sort of navigated my way to a utility. And then, you know, ultimately to this current role, it was via corporate strategy, M&A, and then, and then eventually sort of finding my way into to the current role. But no matter what you do, it takes effort to stay true to one's self. Natalia Pshnishnaya, who worked at the GSMA Foundation for many years, had that focus even as a kid, when she decided to become a vegetarian in Russia, a place not known for a vegetarian cuisine. It wasn't easy being vegetarian 20 years ago in Russia. It's very different right now. So I was more of a pioneer rather than inspired by Russian culture to be a vegetarian. It was super hard being a vegetarian there, just for a record. Like you would come to the restaurant and if you ask for vegetables, they will ask you, what's your main? 
And you have to get the fish or meat if you also want the cauliflower. So you can't just get the cauliflower. So I think right now, if somebody's complaining in Russia that it's difficult, I would say it, it was much more difficult. And it's good to, to be a pioneer sometimes in the long run. It actually works. And I think my explanations to my friends that I'm doing this because we're going to change the demand patterns in the long term made them laugh at the time. But actually, it happened 20 years later. It became much more normal. And I think for me, it was more of a inspiration from nature and just you know, being out camping with my family or taking kayaks and boats for a week sometimes in rural wild areas and just really being in touch with that adventurous side of me is still there and still influences how I make decisions. I think when I'm in the nature, I really see why we need to make an extra effort. So there you have it, a teaser on the next six guests of the Lovers of Exchange podcast. We hope you will join us over the next few weeks, so please don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. I'm the host, Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Thanks again to the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University, for sponsoring Season 3. Please visit our website at www.leversofexchange.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, the clean tech economy will require everyone's participation. How can we exchange ideas today to help you find your role tomorrow? <laughs>